Support for this podcast comes from you. And Biogen, committed to transforming the treatment of neurological disease. Biogen is working to develop life-changing therapies for people with multiple sclerosis, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's, ALS, and spinal muscular atrophy. Biogen.com slash science. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. When I was a kid, one of my favorite places to eat was called Yangtze River. There were very few restaurants anywhere near our house, but I loved Yangtze River. I always got chicken teriyaki, which came on a stick, um, and something that I think was called Lake Tung Ting Shrimp, which had shrimp and broccoli and egg whites and baby corn. Before I was born, though, Chinese food had already started to change and diversify in the U.S. In the 60s, Cecilia Chang opened an upscale restaurant called The Mandarin in San Francisco, which had instructions on the menu for how to eat Chinese food. The Mandarin is one of 10 restaurants that historian Paul Friedman argues changed America. They changed what we eat, our culture, our habits. They also changed how we spend our paychecks. In 2015, Americans spent more on restaurants and bars than they did on groceries. Friedman is a professor of history at Yale and author of 10 Restaurants That Changed America. Paul, welcome. Thank you, Kara. Glad to be here. So I I said where I remember going out to eat in the beginning. Where do you first remember going out to eat? The first Chinese restaurant I remember was called the Shanghai, but we very quickly switched to one called the Tianjin in New York City <laughs> up uh, on 125th Street. And I have the same kind of affectionate memories. The food seemed marvelous. We always ordered the same thing, lobster Cantonese, for example, hmm. beef with snow peas. Hmm. And I have never been able to quite reproduce the feeling that evoked. Right, right. I mean, and it seems like a time when I'm sure the food was a lot less... Chinese, shall we say, than the than some of the Chinese food that you can get now, um, but it was like its own sort of weird hybrid American Chinese creation. It was wonderful, and I, I get the same reaction from lots of people talking about the book. So that one of the restaurants in this book is Howard Johnson's. Or mm-hmm. Another is a chain that was popular in the Northeast called Schrafts, and people their eyes will, you know, start to tear with nostalgia talking (laughs) about these places. So you talk um, in 10 Restaurants That Changed America about the first real modern restaurant being a place called Delmonico's in New York, which is still there. You can can go. But I want to talk first about the place that you just mentioned, a little less fancy, Howard Johnson's. I think a lot of people remember it. I remember it. Uh, Some people just remember it as a hotel. But talk about how Howard Johnson's revolutionized eating in America in kind of this uh, standardized way. It was a place that is remembered with nostalgia, but remembered for rather bland food. In fact, it was quite innovative in its food as well as in its marketing. Howard Deering Johnson uh, was an entrepreneur who developed a kind of ice cream that was richer than the standard ice cream. So he began as an ice cream stand owner in the uh, period just after the First World War. But he established restaurants 
along the roadsides of the growing highways of an automobile-infatuated America. Mm. This was not the first of such restaurants, but most of those restaurants were kind of unpleasant, truck stop, hash house kind of places. They didn't feel they had to offer you very good food because you weren't going to be coming back anyway. Howard Johnson's developed a wholesome, hygienic, predictable, family-friendly image, all of which we kind of take for granted, but that actually had to be invented at a certain Mm. time, the certain time being the 1920s. And the Depression, far from killing that, actually was good to Howard Johnson's. People continued to drive for pleasure. They took their kids. And that was the era, the 30s, when Howard Johnson started to dominate the highways. When it seems like, as you say, it's a car restaurant. I mean, restaurants in general before that, I would guess, would be like in the center of cities where populations are, where people are going to be going by and coming in. But this was meant for for a different kind of technology and a different group of people. Yeah. So you can't have fast food without Howard Johnson's as the model, even though they had a fairly extensive menu. But the standardization that you were talking about, the predictability, they had a certain look. They had an orange roof with a sort of blue design. And after the Second World War, a very distinctive kind of modernist shape. The purpose of that was so that you could see it ahead in time to pull over. In the 1920s, other restaurants would have billboards. Howard Deering Johnson thought that was tacky. (laughs) In order then to alert you, you had to have a distinctive look. And, of course, the fact that you had a distinctive look and a distinctive product or set of products meant that people knew what to expect. Now, in our age, we want originality. We want artisanal food. We want creative stuff. But until relatively recently, people wanted to know what they were going to get. They loved predictability. They knew they would get the fried clam strips or the uh, ice cream or the they served frankfurters in a kind of triangular bun that had butter on it. It's very distinctive, but also eminently predictable. But, you know, I would argue we still really like predictability. I mean, that is a lot of the appeal of everything from McDonald's to, you know, Sweet Green, which is a salad chain. I mean, it is the same from one store to another store to another store. And I think, yes, people, I mean, I agree, people do like novelty, but I think people also like knowing that Applebee's is Applebee's and like you can go in there and, you know, get something that you know about. You can get the fajitas. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. That. People yes. want a combination of predictability and creativity. So a place like Sweet Greens or Chipotle that produces a semi-custom-made product, even if you order the same thing every time, then you get the best of both worlds. So that's kind of the magical place now. But for the period in which Howard Johnson's flourished, just like for the period in which McDonald's ruled the roadways, uh, a more absolute kind of predictability hold the personal attention, hold the creativity. There are some, you know, Burger King advertised on the basis of have it your way, which is a little bit of a nod to creativity. But, of course, nobody's really fooled that this was, uh, you know, an individually produced, uh, lovingly curated product. 
I want to talk about one more kind of standardized restaurant that kind of goes to, again, how restaurants can change culture and sort of work with culture. And that restaurant was one I've, I've never been to. I've sort of vaguely heard of it, Schraff's. But it was very special for how it tried to appeal to women. Tell me, like, why that was so special at the time that that Schraff's was a big deal. Schraff's was founded in 1900, and actually, like Howard Johnson's, it was originally an ice cream business. When it was established, it's not as if women couldn't go to restaurants. Women were welcomed at restaurants right from the start, right from the day Delmonico's opened. But they were welcomed in the company of men. So early 19th century accounts of fancy dinners go on and on about the beautiful clothes and jewels that the women wore. The problem, quote problem, was if uh, women showed up alone or in the company of other women, and particularly the perceived problem was distinguishing respectable women from unrespectable women. But men could go alone, right? To uh, men could go alone, and men could go with either respectable women or not respectable okay. women. <laughs> okay. So the priority for the restaurant owners and presumably for their male customers was to make sure that these two categories of women didn't cross paths. Hmm. And the solution was generally to prohibit women who were unaccompanied by men. Hmm. By the time Schraff's opened, there were places for women, tea rooms and even department store restaurants, the early examples of that. What was different was that Schraff's tried to prepare food that women liked, identified food that women preferred. And that was a combination of what was called dainty at the time. We might call it light food Mm. as the main courses and then elaborate desserts. And so the notion was that women would have a salad, chicken salad, (laughs) or at the time cottage cheese was thought of as a light food or chicken a la king or something else with a cream sauce or cream sauce and pastry shell as their main course and then splurge on a sundae or a banana split for dessert. And I am far from saying that this is really what women's taste I was going to ask you, is. where did, did they get this idea that this is what women want from women? Or, I mean, I don't know, maybe they surveyed women or they just, I don't know, where'd that come they from? They were a successful business. And this is something that a model that is not unknown today, all all I can tell you by way of first-person testimony is that my grandmother took me to Schraff's often, my brother and I, and my mother wouldn't go to Schraff's because my mother was a professional woman, my mother had a PhD, my mother had a job. This was not a place for serious women like her. Really? Interesting. My grandmother loved shopping. My grandmother loved watching soap operas on TV. And... When she went to Schraff's, she would order cottage cheese and fruit as her main course and then uh, I think either a banana split or a chocolate sundae. I'm not Hmm. quite sure if I remember which as um, the follow-up, as the reward. And was there that kind of – is what your mother said about not wanting to go to Schraff's, was there that kind of class or like professional split where – 
some women went to shrubs, but other women thought that was like beneath them or it was, I don't know, too idle or something for them to go to? Too idle Mm. and too bourgeois. So Schrafft was killed by some of the same forces that undermined Howard Johnson's in the late 70s and Mm. in the 1980s, fast food, things like that. But uh, what really killed it was that they were too successful with their image of a certain kind of ladylike customer who was not the model that the women's liberation movement Mm -hmm. or the professionalization of women's work lives That was not the image that women wanted. They tried to appeal to men. Uh, They had some pathetic ads not long before they closed showing uh, women in miniskirts and under the legend, look at the ladies who now eat at Shrafts. But uh, that, that didn't succeed in attracting either men or a more with it up to date uh, hip clientele. Um, So I want to talk about one more restaurant. It is still around today. You can still go to it. Um, uh, It's Chez Panisse in Berkeley, California. And I think it's a funny thing to say about a place whose sort of motivating force was, let's just offer fresh local ingredients. But this is a restaurant that set off an avalanche of food trends that I think it's fair to say still reverberate more than 40 years after it started. That's certainly right. And so there are really two things here. One is the impact of Chez Panisse. When I mentioned this project to people who were involved in restaurants or food, and I said I was going to look at 10 restaurants without naming them, people would immediately say, oh, well, Chez Panisse has got to be one of them. Hmm. So I've had some pushback on some of my restaurant choices. No one has ever said, oh, what, what's Chez Panisse doing there? Huh. Uh, you can't have fresh, local, seasonal, cured, the, the whole panoply of the adjectives that we use now for restaurants without Chez Panisse. And what you said is correct, that it's hard to imagine when that was new, when that was a weird right. innovation. Right. <laughs> Successful innovations always later appeared to be natural and to be inevitable. What characterized most American dining, but also supermarkets and what people bought was a different kind of innovation before the 1970s, and that was variety. America was never very good at producing very high quality, and American consumers didn't really demand necessarily that the produce be seasonal, that the meat be as highly flavored and as rich as possible. What they wanted, they were willing to substitute intrinsic quality for variety. So the ice cream might be made in a factory, but it came in 28 flavors. The uh, orange juice might be carted up from Florida in metal trucks, but it comes in, you know, Grove Stand or some pulp or no pulp or calcium added to it. The basic model of the American food industry, and it's not a conspiracy or anything like that, this is what people until recently preferred, is to offer you all kinds of different choices. So it's not just tomato sauce. It's tomato sauce with garlic, with basil, with additional olive oil, uh, with uh, clams. But it's still an industrial product. What's hard for the American food industry to deliver on, but now it's certainly trying just because of the pressure of the model established by Chez Panisse, is freshness, 
is seasonality, is some kind of close connection with what this thing originally was as a plant or an animal. And that's tough because it's not scalable. What do you think that the role of the restaurant in America is now? Because, it I mean, it's enormous. If you think about food that is not made in the home, that's a lot of the food that we eat. I mean, some of the food we might take back to our houses that was made at a restaurant and some food we eat at the restaurant. But when you think about restaurants and culture right now, what, what do you see happening? I guess two things, maybe one good, one bad. The good is that restaurants like Chez Panisse, obviously, but many others have taught us a lot about what's possible, what things can taste like, how to eat better, how to integrate vegetables into your diet as more than just side dishes, for example, or when asparagus is at its best in the place that you live in. On the other hand, and less favorably, the fact is that if you're interested in health, uh, you should cook your own food. Restaurants are developed, really, their whole purpose is to get you to eat a lot of food. And their success is based on large portions and on uh, food that's flavorful, which includes putting a lot of salt in the food. So generally, if you cook at home, you have more control over how much you're eating and over what you're eating. So the fact that more money is spent on dining out than on groceries, as you said at the opening of the program, is probably not a good thing for Mm. the uh, overall health of the uh, American population. Uh, On the other hand, as I said, the restaurants also show us some ways of eating well, well both in the sense of health, uh, healthful and well in the sense of enjoyably. Paul Friedman is the author of 10 Restaurants That Changed America. He's also a professor of history at Yale. Thank you so much for being here. It's been a pleasure. A couple of additional little morsels here before we leave the topic of food. And both of them come from a trip I made to Los Angeles a few months ago. I was sick during the trip. It rained most of the time. And in what turned out to be a little bit of therapy one afternoon, I headed to a Korean taco place to meet with a couple of food experts. I ordered a blackjack taco, pork, cheese, onions, and I started listening to some stories about food. One of the most amazing was about a menu. Menus obviously can reveal a lot about culture. As I mentioned earlier, you had Cecilia Chang with this high-end Chinese restaurant in the 1960s, and she had to explain on the menu how you eat and share Chinese food. But that's nothing compared to some of the menus that Josh Kuhn has come across. Kuhn is a professor at the University of Southern California and author of To Live and Dine in L.A., and he told me about this early barbecue joint in South L.A. called Vans and a menu that he uncovered from 1942. And this was um, a menu that was for a Louisiana barbecue joint targeting the growing African-American population in that neighborhood. And the menu is printed on a Mexican beer cardstock with a Mexican bullfight on it um, and a beer bottle on the front. So that was interesting. It was, also was that because it was just like funded by the, often like the menus, beer? Was often menus would be printed on this cardstock, yeah. but it also was a very um, 
uh, important foreshadowing of the changing demographics of that very neighborhood, that that neighborhood 20 years later actually would become a Mexican dominant neighborhood um, after being African-American, after being working class white, et cetera. And so you've got that on the menu, um, but you also at the top have a little notice from um, one of the local newspapers about food rationing because of World War II. So there's a little notice about certain things are not going to be available on the menu, and you've got to get used to the fact that um, we're going to have to do food rationing. So suddenly there was also an ec a really interesting economic uh, angle to it. And then next to that, the owners of the restaurant, um, or whoever printed the menu, I should say, reprinted what looked like a piece of advertising or... I don't even know what you'd call it, from a, also from a newspaper, uh, advertising saying that every, uh, it was urging everybody to buy a defense stamp, and every defense stamp that you buy um, will help send a Jap to hell. So this is like literally right above like, you know, how much it costs to get pork loin and wow. ribs. And so here you had this, this really basic, simple menu that tells you about changing demographics in the neighborhood, tells you about wartime rationing, tells you about xenophobia, anti-Japanese sentiment, um, connects African-American, Mexican-American, and Japanese-American culture, all in a, a, in a, you know, a restaurant that I think has, has, was quickly forgotten uh, and is not known in the annals of food history, yet its menu tells us these really important stories. Josh Kuhn's story of the menu at Van's Barbecue was a story of food reflecting culture. But you could also argue that there are restaurants, there are food trends that change culture and that change what we crave. The food writer Tian Nguyen told me that one such trend started taking hold a little bit more than a decade ago in L.A., and it has had real impact all across the country. It was the shift to casual food grabbing the headlines. Tacos, hot dogs, dumplings... And keep this in mind, Wynne made her case to me with a bottle of sriracha sauce next to her, another trend from the L.A. area that has definitely influenced dining in America. If you look at reviews prior to 2005, say, most of the reviews that were, most of the pieces about food and about restaurants, the type of places that were worth writing about, the type of places that got the awards, um, they kind of look like, they all kind of look the same, right? They're usually high-end or mid-high-end restaurants, white tablecloths, nice wine list. Um, the food that was coming out of the kitchen was probably Eurocentric in nature. The chef was probably a white male who had a certain pedigree behind him. With, with LA's food becoming at the forefront, I think we've done a great job and it's been really, the impact has been to shift the focus a little bit, to say that this taco that you just ate is just as worthy of 5,000 words as a pasta with foie on it. That the chef who made this food is just as worthy of getting an award as you know somebody who got the same award 10 or 15 years ago. So I think our idea of what is good and what's valued has changed. Some of what changed was also a technological shift, the rise of bloggers and Yelpers, who suddenly had this new ability to influence where people went, rather than restaurant reviews, which once upon a time had had all the power. And tacos, if you think about it, often fit a blogger's budget a lot better than, let's say, foie gras. If you want to know more about Tian Nguyen's work and watch her pay a visit to the Sriracha factory, or if you want to read more about the menus that Josh Kuhn has unearthed, you can head to our website, innovationhub.org. There, we will also have a video in which I pit two ways of roasting a chicken against each other. It is as close as I will ever come to having my own cooking show.
people create something new, it's small scale, a shed in the backyard, a small business. What it is not, usually, is a village. But there are exceptions. Judy Cockerton used to be a small businesswoman. She owned toy stores. Then she started to think bigger. I met her on a cold day in central Massachusetts in the village that she built. And she wants villages like this all around the country. She's actually already at work on one in California. They're for kids and they're for two other groups of people. People who have or people who want to adopt those kids and senior citizens who are often done raising their own families, but they are not done wanting to nurture a new generation. The young people who live here, it's called Treehouse Village, have to meet a single criteria. They're foster care kids, or at least they once were. To understand why Judy Cockerton would want to build these places for kids, you've got to go back to a dinner that she had about 20 years ago. We were at dinner, uh, my husband and our two children and I, and um, he's a newspaper man, he's a photojournalist, and he said one night, here's an article that I think would be, you'd find interesting. And um, I had owned my own businesses for almost 20 years. I loved my work. I was not looking for anything else to do. And this was a little story about a, a baby boy, a five-month-old baby boy, living in Worcester in a foster home who was kidnapped from his crib in the middle of the day. I was a teacher, I was a mom, I was a businesswoman, and that article was such a catalyst for me. I remember saying to my kids, who were 12 and 18 at the time, can you come back? They were putting their dishes in the sink. Can you come back and sit down? Because we need to have a family meeting. Mm -hmm. And um, we talked about our public foster care system and that it's our public foster care system and that things like this should never happen. And what were we going to do as a family to help support the work of the Department of Children and Families so that children were never involved in situations like this? And we decided that we wanted to be a foster family. And you just had this meeting even though foster care had never been a part of your life right. or you knew nothing about it. Right, right. Do you think that's unusual? I mean, think about how many stories people read in the newspaper about, you know, wars and terribly sad things that happen in, in our country and other countries. And mostly then you just clean up after mm -hmm. dinner. You clean mm -hmm. up after breakfast or whatever. I don't know. I think this this uh, this story just just really caught me. My husband knew it would. <laughs> I always say the reason that we became foster parents was because you gave me an article. <laughs> um, but um, you know, it just uh, it just hooked me. I was forty eight years old, and I had been serving children like my own children, children of privilege, children who had so many wonderful opportunities and so many wonderful resources. And I just uh, began reading everything I could get my hands on. I'd say, you know, by the time children were placed in our home, I really felt like I had learned three really important things. The first one is we have set our children, our child welfare system up to fail. Because we say, here, have a little bit of money. Your mandate is to take care of the most challenging and vulnerable children and families. And we'll only pay attention if something goes wrong. Yeah, so um, 
that was the first thing I learned, that we had set our, our child welfare system up to fail. The second thing I learned is that every year in this country, 25,000 young Americans age out of our foster care system alone at risk for homelessness, incarceration, lives of poverty, teen parenting, unemployment. Basically, they are the next generation of poor and homeless Americans. So that was a, a really big reality check for me. In fact, that was the statistic that grabbed me by the ankle and would not let me go. That was the statistic that led me to create the Treehouse community. So, you know, you read this article... It kind of changes the way that you think about foster care. You bring a foster care child into your life, a little baby girl. How old was she? Five months old. Five months old. At what point do you think, and also, I'm going to start a town? <laughs> because that's a big leap, right? Yes, a lot yes. of, you know, there you've got people who certainly um, help with foster care, but that you've done something bigger than I think most people. Well, I remember standing in the Lego section of my toy store in Brookline called No Kidding. And I was in the Lego section rocking my little one to sleep. She was in her little baby Bjorn carrier. And I was thinking about everything I'd learned. I was thinking about the fact that I had learned that we had set our child welfare system up to fail, that 25,000 young people age out of foster care alone every year. I also realized that most Americans think there are only two ways they can support a child placed in care. You either become a foster parent or you adopt a child from care. And if you can't do that, then there's nothing else to do. This is how people think about it. And so the result is millions of Americans turn and walk away from children in their communities, the children who need them the most. So I'm rocking the baby to sleep, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, I've learned all these things. What can I do as a teacher, as a 48-year-old citizen? What can I do to help flip the paradigm, the current paradigm? And... Um, that was really the moment I began re-envisioning foster care in America because I thought, okay, if I can get those millions of Americans to stop and turn around and come back and become resources to children placed in foster care, that would really make a difference. Did you ever worry before it was built or while it was getting built, what if people don't move in with their kids? Or what if seniors don't want to do this like they're not their kids they're not their grandkids do you know what I mean what what if we get maybe a couple people but but I'm building a town here and we're gonna need to populate it um, I never worried about it once because as a foster adoptive parent myself, I knew that the need for foster adoptive parents to be supported and not be isolated out in random communities across the Commonwealth, when you're in isolation, you fail. And so I knew that there were lots of families like my family that would love living in a community where their needs were being met and supported and uh, the health and well-being of their families family was being supported and that they were being strengthened as a family. And I just knew so many wonderful elders who wanted to live lives of meaning and purpose. So I'm 65. Um, and elders who come to live at Treehouse are 55 and older. And elders living on Treehouse Circle right now are 58 
to 95. Hmm. And the majority of those folks are women. And they are women who love children, have raised children, whose families may be too busy to be involved with them in the ways that they have energy to be involved with. Perhaps they live in other states. But these are vibrant women who want to give back and men as well. Um, But these are seniors who really want to be living lives of meaning and purpose and don't want to be living with just one age group who want to be part of something big. Many states have struggled. Uh, Massachusetts has struggled. New York has struggled. Mississippi has struggled with maintaining their foster care system. What is it about managing a foster care system on the state level that is so difficult? I mean, you think about there's all these class action lawsuits against the foster care system. There's something that must be very, very difficult for the people who work in it, even as social workers and everything, to manage this? And why haven't we figured it out in America yet? Well, I think standing on the front lines as a foster parent, what I saw is that social workers are young and inexperienced often. They are dealing with very, very complex families with very, very complex challenges. And they are um, oftentimes given way too many caseloads. So they're overwhelmed, they're under-resourced, and it takes us to be able to step up and say, wait a minute, there must be a better way to do this. Without us, they cannot do their work. How much of a complication do you think the opioid slash heroin epidemic has created for the foster system in every state? I think it's overwhelmed the child welfare system in every single state because there are so many uh, young children and youth coming into the system uh, because of it. Have you seen, so, you know, Treehouse Village has been around for just about a decade. Have you seen things really change in a decade in terms of drug use and how that impacts kids? Well, I just know from our child welfare partners that there are many, many young children coming into care as a result of the opioid addiction Mm -hmm. epidemic Mm -hmm. and that they need as many people to step up to the plate to support those infants, toddlers, preschoolers, um, and and elementary age children as possible. That is such a tough situation that you've got a bunch of people with really young kids, but they can't really help them in the way that they probably would like to and, and absolutely you know it takes uh, it's 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 an engaged citizenry that will help the department of children and families become successful mm-hmm. how has um running this kind of little village starting it up how has it changed you in the last decade. Do you feel different? Oh, I feel like I'm a much better human being. Not that I wasn't a nice person before, but I just feel like I have come into contact with so many fabulous people of all ages and backgrounds, Um, people who are struggling mightily, who have taught me about humility and strength and grit and resilience and uh, grace. 
um, and people, philanthropists who who would invest in this mission and vision in large ways because they understand the importance of it. That's very humbling as well. So I feel like from um, all places on the spectrum, I have learned many, many lessons and uh, continue to every day. No matter where I go, I'm learning something new about how to address a certain issue, how to collaborate with people in a different way. When I owned my own businesses, I was used to turning on a dime. Like if I wanted to change something, I changed it fast and then I got a new result. You can't necessarily do that when you're working with a child welfare system or you're working with people who are afraid of child welfare in general or who are uh, who just don't have the resources necessary to move quickly. Um, so it's been uh, quite a learning experience for me, quite a journey, and I, I'm very grateful for it. Do you ever feel like it takes an emotional toll on you? No. No? No. So you're 65, you said? Yes. Um, do you think you'll still be doing this in 10 years? I hope so. Okay. Retirement so. is not No, it's not an option for me. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like with 25,000 young Americans aging out of foster care every year, you know, as long as I can do this work, I'm here. I'm in it for the long haul. I'm in it. I always say onward and upward for the kids. Judy, thank you so much. This is great. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Hi. When my producer and I visited Treehouse Village in a small town in central Massachusetts, we got there at tea time. Three days a week, the seniors in the community host this afternoon event where kids can hang out, they can get homework help, there's pie, soup, salad. I really, 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 really like how I have friends here because in Springfield I didn't like have like a lot of friends at all. Azaria, who's nine, told us that she also has some friends who are a little older. Well, I usually draw with one of them. She's really nice. And we usually talk and they ask me what's going on. I tell them about school and stuff. But that's mostly one person. We're neighbors, actually. The closest, very close neighbors. She lives in a house. A full house, children and, and adults, and I live in senior housing, which is just one personal, you know. <laughs> and she's delightful. Emily Lewis has known Azaria for four years, ever since she moved next door to her family. Like a lot of the elders living at Treehouse, Lewis had never worked directly with foster care kids before. The challenges are few, but one that has been a real learning experience is to get the kids to trust you. Uh, it took years, actually, several years with some of them, for them to just not see me as a potential threat. And it's been a process. It's a process that seems to be working, at least for Azaria. I'm glad they don't pinch my cheeks like in movies. But there is a big question underneath all the excitement. Can Judy Cockerton's village concept scale up and multiply out? The answer is complicated. Right now, foster families receive, on average, about $25 a day for each kid. That breaks down to about a dollar an hour. I think it's easy to say the foster care system's failing. Joe Ryan is a professor at the School of Social Work at the University of Michigan. The, the kids who go into foster care, they have lower levels of college enrollments, they have higher levels of delinquency. But these are problems that a lot of them had coming into the foster care system, so it's not the foster care system per se. 
Could it be improved? Absolutely. At Treehouse, all families are either planning to or already have adopted their kids, which might explain the 99% high school graduation rate. Ryan doubts that places like Treehouse could fix the entire foster care system, but he does see them as part of a larger network. Everyone always wants to scale their programs. There's no real drawbacks. I mean, in any of these interventions, uh, we ought to view them as contributing to the solution, right? They're not going to work for all kids. As the treehouse model expands across the country, even Judy Cockerton acknowledges that building a bunch of villages is too small scale to change the lives of hundreds of thousands of kids. But like Ryan, she subscribes to that multi-pronged approach. She told me she organizes her communities to support mentorship programs and summer activities, things that are going to involve a lot of foster care kids in the area. So the idea is that the the village is sort of there. It's an anchor. It's a place to gather. Some people live here, but it's sort of It's a hub of innovation. It is a hub of innovation. (laughs) Really? Yes, yes. (laughs) Um, We, yeah, and we've said that since 2006, you know, and it's a catalyst for inspiring widespread foster care innovation. Judy Cockerton is now building a second treehouse village in Massachusetts and is finding a site for a third in California. If you want to learn more about her work and about some of the issues that have plagued the foster care system in recent years, you can head to our website, innovationhub.org. Plus, if you want to make sure you don't miss any of our segments, subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts, and every week we will send you a fresh crop of conversations. thousand feet. There's that engine relay. Feet. Landing gear deployed. Five miles per hour. I'm Kara Miller. This is Innovation Hub. And what you just heard is a rocket from the company Blue Origin, which wants to get tourists into orbit next year. And probably, not surprisingly these days, it is owned by Amazon. SpaceX, meanwhile, which was started by Elon Musk, who also founded Tesla, has talked about sending ordinary people to the moon, and it has already landed a rocket on a drone ship. Our producer, Mark Solinger, loves space, and he's been looking at how the space race is opening up to private companies and to regular consumers. Mark, thanks for coming in to talk about this. Thanks. So before we dive into the business of space, I just want to ask you, um, how did you first come to love space? I mean, to be perfectly honest, Star Wars and to a lesser extent Star Trek, <laughs> like my love of space battles kind of just transformed into an actual love of real space science. I, I think that is true for a lot of people. But um, if you are not into Star Trek or Star Wars, perchance, why should we care about like the space industry? Well... We don't often think about it, but the space industry kind of like uh, makes our modern life possible, really. Like communications, smartphones, GPS, so much of it depends on satellites and rockets. So you went to a conference at MIT about this new era in the business of space. Give me a sense of what is going on right now. Yeah. So for one thing, there's a lot of money being invested into the industry. In 2015, there were almost $2 billion being put into space startups. And that's more in one year than in the previous 15 years combined. Wow. 
but there's also breakthrough science. You've got people building ion rockets. There's talk of mining asteroids. There are lawyers who specialize in space law. And yes, <laughs> space lawyer is the coolest type of lawyer you can be. It's a it's a niche area of the law <laughs> for sure. Mm -hmm. So I actually encountered a company called Spaceflight Industries, which is bringing a kind of ride sharing to rockets. So if you've got a small company, you can buy space no pun intended, on a rocket and get a little satellite into orbit. So this is like um, sort of getting your stuff into the cargo hold of a plane, which companies do all the time. But obviously this is a plane going way beyond any plane I've ever been on. Exactly. Uh, but one of the things that interested me the most about the conference was that underneath the involvement of big players like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, there's a lot of smaller companies trying to get a piece of the action. So, as you know, I have often been skeptical of sort of the space industry. Um, but it is interesting, actually, to think about Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, because these are people who have been very focused on success here on Earth um, and really thinking about what technology people will actually adopt, what is right around the corner. So the fact that they are focused on space now makes me think they see a real value proposition here. Right, right, exactly. So beyond the way that space already impacts our daily lives, which I talked right. about before, there's a belief, which Elon Musk has expressed, that more far out things like colonizing the moon and Mars is, is doable. What, what I really want to try to uh, achieve here is to make Mars seem possible, uh, make it seem as though it's something that we can do in our lifetimes. And for the people who believe in his vision, it is what's around the corner. I talked to uh, Keegan Kirkpatrick, the founder of Redworks, who basically runs a Martian construction startup, uh, which has figured out how to <laughs> how to build on the red planet. And while it's waiting for us to, you know, colonize Mars, they're using the technology they developed to help build structures differently on Earth. Mm. And their idea is to use essentially the rocky dirt of Mars to construct dwellings, which they say is a lot like building early American Pueblos, and it's a lot like what's called welded tuff that was used to build many homes in the Roman Empire. Welded tuff is a volcanic compound that's somewhere between granite and pumice in terms of its structural integrity. It's stronger than brick, about as strong as concrete, so you can make very, very strong building material terrestrially that is very similar to what was used thousands of years ago with no additional binders and can be made entirely on site. So you don't have to import water or concrete or clay to make bricks. I love that when we get to the future, like when we get to Mars, it'll look like Pueblos. It'll look like the Roman Empire. It's literally back to the future. Yeah, yeah. And they're going to start all this by building on Earth. And that approach isn't unique to them. It's called terrestrial first, hmm. which means researching and developing technologies for space and then using that research for technology here on Earth. And this has happened before. NASA's research led to the development of Tempur-Pedic, new types of baby formula, smartphone cameras, uh, just a few examples. So... Are there obstacles here, as far as you can tell, in terms of, you know, things that might stop the private space industry from really doing well, from making money, um, from accomplishing the kind of goals that, you know, Elon Musk has? Well, first off, space is hard. It's different than four people in a garage writing code and creating <laughs> the next Facebook. Satellites and rockets are extremely complicated machines, and investing in space doesn't always provide immediate returns. I talk with Ellen Chang, who works with new space-oriented companies, and she's really optimistic about the future, but she admits that it's difficult to attract the money of venture capitalists, VCs, who are kind of the lifeblood of new companies and new industries. 
of 3,000 venture firms out there, I would say probably 30, maybe 50 are interested in space. And so I just want to provide that context. Those that are interested are super interested and are increasingly bullish. Those that are skeptical remain skeptical. And there's also the fact that the price of getting something into space is still really steep, $5,000 to $10,000 per pound. So it limits the materials you can get up in there. Um, But if you step back and look at the big picture, the public is interested, the money is there, and it seems like the industry is just going to get bigger. One thing that kind of reflects this optimism was a conversation I had towards the end of the conference with one of its uh, student organizers, a guy named Barrett Schlegelmilch, who's working on a master's in aero-astro engineering. <laughs> I did not even know that was a word, much less something you could get a master's in, but okay, go ahead. It is very uh, impressive and much more impressive than my it... radio, television, <laughs> film major. Um, and I asked him what his family thinks about him entering the sector. Uh, they're they're very excited about it. Um, so dream since I was a little kid is to be an astronaut. I've always been interested in space. I grew up in uh, in Hawaii on the Big Island where we could see the night sky very clearly, and that's why it's so exciting to see the industry, the private space industry, really booming right now, and to be able to be involved with humanity's next steps. You know past planet Earth into a sustainable system where, you know, we're not just a single planet species. So they're uh, happy and uh, very excited for me when I when I talk to him about it. So and so am I. That's great. I like that in 2017, you can say to your parents, I want to make sure we're not just a single planet species, you know, that we don't just live here on Earth. And they say, sounds good, kid. <laughs> I mean, it's I think it's where we're headed. And I mean, I, for one, would love to live on Mars. I mean, wouldn't you? I think that you can check it out for me and let me know what you think. (laughs) Uh, Mark Sollinger is a producer here at Innovation Hub. Mark, thank you so much. Thank you. And on our website, we've got more about the new age of space exploration, including a video of the first reusable rocket ever launched by a private company. That's at innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Sollinger and Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Schuckerts. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Carol Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI Public Radio International.